Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 103 of the Mike's Search for Meaning podcast. My guest today is Michael Kohler, and a very important note about the timing of this conversation. This episode was recorded on August 3rd, 2023, which is about two months before the war in the Middle East began. And the reason that this is really important to note is because a large part of our conversation focuses on Michael being from Germany and what that means for him as a leader today, reconciling Germany's, of course, really terrible past with the Holocaust. And as Michael goes through what that means for him, reconciling his past being German and what that means for him as a leader today, the reason that we did not talk about the war with Israel and Hamas is because the recording happened before the war began. I think that's really important to note. Now, this conversation is a really deep exploration of exploring our individual and collective pain and trauma so that we don't let it unconsciously dictate our lives. And Michael really courageously and openly explores that in this conversation today. We also talk about how imperative it is for leaders to be able to navigate complexity Something that we don't get into too much, if at all, in this conversation today is technical versus adaptive challenges. And Michael, as the CEO of an organization called Konu, really helps organizations dig into adaptive challenges. Adaptive challenges require more complex thinking than if this, then that. And technical challenges are things that are typically worked on by, say, an engineer, right? Like an engineer or a surgeon, you want an engineer or a surgeon to be able to follow a set of guidelines and rules. And that's not the same thing as what's called from leaders today. Leaders, a lot of times, are dealing with challenges that do not have easy answers. They might not have answers at all, and we have to sit with the challenge of that. Things like sexism, racism, these are really huge challenges that organizations and leaders are faced with today. And so Michael explores this as well as reconciling his past being German and now living in America and how important it is for all of us to be looking at who we are, where we come from, how are we affected by the way we are raised, the country we were born in. All these things are so imperative to look at. And Michael gives us the gift of exploring that in real time on this conversation. So I'll let Michael take it from here. And with all that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with Michael Kohler. All right, Michael, welcome to what today I guess will be Michael's search for meaning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Yeah. So there, there's so many different directions I want to go today. And Something that seems important to both of us is to understand, reconcile our past, both individually and collectively. 
And I actually start every interview with the same question. It's an interesting portal into your personal past and will give us fertile ground for a lot of the rest of the conversation. And I would love to know, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? <laughs> Trigger alert. <laughs> it was not easy at my dinner table. My parents who got you know divorced after 40 years, when you ask them, what did you get divorced? They would say like, you know, the last 40 years. And so, <laughs> so at our dinner table, there was like often like argument and, and tension between mom and dad and the younger, younger kid. I have a 10 year older sister who kind of, you know, was only basically half of the time of my childhood from like zero to 10. She lived at home with us and then she was off for college and I was by myself. And so most of the dinner table memories I have. It's actually me sitting in a triangle with my parents and kind of kind of incompetently trying to make peace mm. between those two adults who could not figure out how to like, you know, you know, be together. And and so I was hard. And and at the same time, I think, you know, even though sort of the, the peace builder was not very successful at home, I think I learned very early on a skill there that is still relevant in my work today around like perspective taking and coaching and mediating and all mm. of that stuff. And sometimes people ask me, when did you start this work? I would probably say at the dinner table mm. at home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael, I share this quality with you. I, I felt like, well, I had a, I'm really grateful for my upbringing, but I also felt like the mediator of the family that if there was conflict that I, I took on the role of peacemaker, that it was my job to, make sure the tension was brought down. And I, so I, I've heard you speak to one byproduct of that for me was that I have this interesting, interesting is one way to put it. I have a challenging relationship with anger. And mm. I've heard you speak to the same thing before that anger, maybe you, I would love to hear you talk about how you have internalized what anger is. I'd be happy to share on my ends too. And, uh, what it means to you to be in right relationship with anger. So I, th I think in the leadership development space, anger is actually a really powerful vehicle and tool. Now I'm curious <laughs> about what your relationship is, but I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the headline. Maybe we can sort of create this together. But um, so the, the, the headline I think is as, as a child, I don't think I have learned how to deal with anger productively in the sense that I don't think there was much space for me to express my own anger or my own, even my own needs in that context. There was just a lot of problem space already in my family of origin. And so like, I always like, I think I'm, I've, I grew up holding that assumption that like, I can't add any further problems to the family system. So, you know, that's where I created kind of this, this assumption around, I need to perform well in school and I need to like be nice and, all of that stuff. And so there was not much space for anger. And it really became difficult when I kind of, as an adult, realized how triggered I am around anger, around other people's anger, and how that even like kind of a fairly, I would say, non-threatening way of somebody being angry, you know, not talking about violence here, but just somebody saying like, I'm angry, like how that you know, used to trigger me or still sometimes does trigger me in, in ways that feel unsafe to me without that actually being unsafe. 
whether I came home in my own marriage, um, when my husband shows anger, but that also comes home when I'm I'm dealing with you know people in authority roles, or just in my you know work relationships, and and of course the expression of my own anger, which I th- I would say has been highly repressed to the point that I don't even even notice that, and and so some of the the work that I've done recently, particularly when around the pandemic and the George George Floyd and the the subsequent kind of heightened around sort of race identity themes um were really kind of getting in touch more with my own triggers around anger my own anger ways of like you know surfacing my anger and and feeling allowing myself to experiment with versions of expressing anger and dealing with the worries that come up around like, oh my God, do I hurt people when I tell them I'm angry? Like this behavior makes me angry. But then also like as a result, maybe become a little bit more comfortable with with other people expressing their anger towards me. And and like, it's, it's been a very interesting healing journey, but I'm certainly still on that journey. But now I'm curious, you know, how, how is this, how's this showing up for you? Yeah, well, in in so many words, I learned that anger is bad. I, I wasn't... I didn't grow up around healthy expressions of anger. And if you go back in my lineage of you know, my, my parents' parents, anger was always a gnarly emotion. It was always unleashed in a way that it was probably repressed for a long time and then explosive and then repressed and explosive. And and what I internalized at a young age, when I saw that, I I think I told myself, I am not going to do anger. Anger is really bad. And so like you... I was probably walking around with so much repressed anger all the time, not knowing how to be with it or how to be with other people's anger either. And in studying this thing we call consciousness and and leadership development, inner work, I've learned that every emotion is communicating something to us that's it's not good or bad. So this this continues to be a really big part of my journey too, just understanding what healthy anger looks like what healthy grief sadness fear all of that looks like because i in many ways have internalized that anything other than being pleasant to be around and being happy is is not desirable so yeah as as i as i evaluate my parents or or my history i i'm in touch with especially the the men in my family that anger was was very very in your face and it would, it would take up the energy of the room. And I did, I think it's common for one person to either take that on themselves or to do the exact opposite. So I, I did the exact opposite. And like you, that has served me in a lot of ways as a peacemaker and someone who's able to mediate. And in other ways, I can really easily both lose my sense of self and also not be around other people when they're in a place of tension. So th- that's a little bit about my, my personal relationship with anger. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the boundaries is such a hard piece for me, right? I, I like, I, I used to, and sometimes still do would like forget. I feel like anger can set in when the boundaries are violated. And I, I like, I sometimes work myself to like exhaustion because mm-hmm. that that anger that kicks in that says like, hey, this is enough is enough. Like I don't even notice that or or notice that far too late. So it's it's interesting. It's it's really interesting how these 
how what it served us in a way is like also getting in our way. Yeah. Do you have a sense on on how this this kid and you made that choice between like, you know, fight back versus like, oh no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take this thing on, like that choice point that you're describing? Mm. I mean, one thing that I I think was also really prevalent for me was that I I felt like I was rewarded if I was in air quotes perfect. Like if I if I did what was expected of me, that that generated a lot of praise. And so it seemed like the easiest way for me to generate a lot of praise yeah. was to like if I'm asked to do a chore and I don't do it, I'm I might get yelled at. But if I do the chore, then I'm going to be celebrated for that. If I do my homework, if I do any of those things, it felt better for me to do what was expected of me and deal with the con my own consequences later than to do the opposite, like take a firm stand and say, I, I'm actually, I want to put, put a boundary up like this is, you're not expressing this in a clean way to me. So I, yeah, that was the best way for me to cope as a child was I wanted to be perfect. And I thought that there was a way that if, if I, It was, it was in a weird way, it was manipulative. And my way of trying to control was that if I was perfect, then there wouldn't be any anger. And, and that's the best that the child in me could do. And he's a beautiful kid. And I've also learned that there's other, you know, anger is not bad and that being perfect doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. I, there's, there's so many places that I want to go, but I, I love in your podcast on the balcony I think it's it's really a neat way to understand a little bit about who someone is, is is through the different hats that we wear, different identities. So in if you were a guest on on the balcony on your own podcast <laughs> and you were you were checking in as we shift out of childhood and more just into who you are today and, and the hats that you wear, what would be the identities that you would show my audience right now? Like who who's Michael? Who is Michael? <laughs> a white German gay man. Like I'm, I'm like, as I'm finding it, like selecting the, the, the identities here, like sort of, it's almost interesting, like the kind of, we can think about sort of the, the, you know, historically more sort of oppressor identities, like, you know, white male German, uh, mm. we'll talk a little bit more about kind of German stuff uh, later, but then also like kind of, you know, I'm a, I'm a gay man. I'm, an immigrant i identify as an immigrant in in this country in the us i've i've uh moved here 11 years ago come for grad school met my husband stayed we decided to to live here uh, i live in an uh, interracial marriage my in-laws are from, immigrated from taiwan in the 80s and so i'm kind of sort of in terms of social identity i i'm really holding kind of the many of the boundaries that were maneuvering in organizations and society kind of in a way within me. I um, come from a post-industrial town with a lot of unemployment, a lot of gray. <laughs> That's like what people describe the town I grew up in in Germany, kind of from kind of a, a middle to low class experience in terms of education and, and, you know, economic background and the, um, you know, I think I have about, you know, a little over 30 cousins and like there's two people who, or three people who went to, went to university and two of them are my sister and me, right? And mm. everybody else is is much more sort of working class. So, so it's kind of an interesting 
mix of identity intersections. And then there is the, the chosen identities of work identities, identify as an entrepreneur, as a coach, as a facilitator, as a yogi. I've been recently really intensified my yoga practice as a as a guitar beginner player. Um <laughs> As a as a dancer, dance was a big part in my life and in my past. Yeah, those those are some of the identities. There's probably more, but those are the ones that are in the foreground right now. Mm -hmm. mm. And one, one another one that you didn't mention that I think could be interesting is educator. I know that you you're definitely yes. an educator, right? And yes, th there's a I have a curiosity about where where all these things emerge from, but. I know something that was really important to you to talk about, and I think it's important for all of us to look at in our own life, is reconciling our past. And, and you said you're from Germany, and Germany is one of the oppre oppressor identities. And actually, I one of my identities is Jewish. And so in my recent studying of epigenetics, I know that the past doesn't just live in the past. I know that, you know, scarcity in a lot of ways is hardwired into me, right? That there's scarcity around food, scarcity around money. And I think that that's, that's probably true for a lot of people who are in an oppressed group like Jews. Yeah. And there's also a lot of trauma that comes from being in an oppressor. And, and if we don't look at our past and do the healing around that, it continues to kind of unconsciously run the script on our life. And Gosh. so like, thank you for taking the courageous look at this and for bringing this to me as something you wanted to talk about. And yeah, like, what would you say, what, what do you feel compelled to share about your German, not your German, your journey and Germany's journey? <laughs> Well, thanks for thanks for bringing this up and and like the 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 way how we carry this stuff with us. I just want to name the the moment you said you know you identify as Jewish. Like I just want to say like my own like heart rate went like like just up by a beat, right? And it's so interesting how like in our sort of consciousness and and bodies we are carrying like sort of here we are at that intersection german jewish in this podcast you know i come with like i want to talk about germany's history and like how we we're dealing with it and and like the that that moment like you know such an it's so interesting like like how much we are carrying that and my sense is like in a way that happens very very often when when representatives of boundaries a meeting with each other at the workplace. And and most of the time it's subconscious. Like most of the time it's glazed over and like, okay, but my heartbeat, maybe I've noticed, not even noticed my heart rate goes up a little bit, but like, but like that, that stuff is, it's present with us, whichever boundary, you know, we're, we're crossing. So I, ca I care a lot about this stuff. And I, I really think it's, it's an interesting field, particularly as we're thinking about sort of, you know, current times in our world and thinking about how to how to how to work across difference how to heal the historic injustices we are representing in our our world across many different dimensions race and gender being two of them that are very present there are others in 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 many parts of the of the world but those are the two that are very feel very present to me current kind of in, in my life maybe also sexual orientation which is something that 
that you know is you know shows up for me in my life. But I think what what is interesting for me, and I I'm just coming back from Germany. That's why it's so so alive, and had a few American friends with me, and we did a little bit of a tour of Berlin, and it was really important for me to like tour, show them around Berlin, and like talk about sort of the the good and the bad and the ugly around how Germans have learned to deal with history and 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 memorialize history, and we sort of went through some of the memorials and went also to some of the sites that you know, are kind of, you know, not so good at memorialization, but a little bit more sort of the, you know, Victor uh, approaches to history. And, and, and all of that has been very interesting. And the reason it's been interesting for me because is, is because my sense is that these dimensions are worked very differently in the United States. That is also struggling with its really difficult history in kind of the, the two big, kind of the, the two big historical atrocities around the genocide of the Native Americans and then the, the history around slavery and, and you know, subsequent, uh, you know, atrocities towards, you know, Black people and brown people in America. And um, and so, like, I'm, I feel like, you know, interested in in kind of thinking through, like, some of the German history particularly as it pertains to like working through the Holocaust and working through like, like really dealing with that, with that, with that harsh, harsh part of our own history and thinking through like sort of what can we, what can we, how does learning happen and what can we learn from kind of different iterations and different cultures adjusting with things. And I think there's a couple of things that have worked well in Germany. There's a couple of things that aren't working well in Germany that are just different than in the US. And I, I think that's really interesting to talk about. So, you know, happy to dive into that more more deeply, but also curious to hear what's coming out as I even try to frame up why this is important to me and why that is a is a topic that I'd I'd love to to bring to this conversation. Yeah. Well when I wrap up, please do continue on. I, I would love to hear it. it. It brings up it brings up a couple of things for me. So one is I want to also acknowledge my my oppressive identity. So I'm heterosexual white male, in addition to being Jewish. And so I'm deeply in touch with the level of privilege that I have uh, being in a white male heterosexual body as well. And the the discomfort that you spoke to when I announced that I'm Jewish and you're German, in a lot of ways, I, I've probably hidden most of my life from when I pass, say, someone who is unhoused or is a person of color who is black, there are all of these kind of unconscious scripts running through me that I intellectually have, have wanted to bypass. But I think it's really important for all of us to do our work around these really thorny challenges that we're confronted with as a society. So I want to name that. I, I think that it's it seems to be one of the most easily avoided pieces of inner work. And I know my mind can be really sneaky with saying I'm one of the good guys. It's happened a long time ago, but I think it's really important. And there's a story that's coming up for me. I mean, I think this is a beautiful demonstration of what might be possible in terms of if we take the look at the hard thing and do our healing, what's possible on the other side. I don't know if you're familiar with Raj Sisodia, but I I recently had the opportunity to interview him on my podcast. He wrote a book called Awaken, and he was looking at, he comes from a 
patriarchal, kind of brutal caste, feudal system in India. And so what I experienced in my family of a lineage of angry men, he experienced a hundredfold. I mean, it was it was a really brutal time and area to grow up in and, and poverty and everything. And there was actually within the family, the treatment of women was terrible. And there were actually murders of women who were, I, I don't remember what the reason was, but it was something that was suppressed and buried and put away. And Raj told this incredible story about how he called all of his family together to talk about the atrocities that were committed by his family and acknowledging all of the loss and the pain that happened in a group of maybe 70 people in his family and what the path forward might look like as a family. So I'm in touch with just like how courageous it is, but also how powerful it is to have maybe ceremony would be one way to put it, or just some sort of congregation and healing spaces for this to, to be addressed. So I I think those are pertinent examples to talk about what you're speaking to here. And and now I would love to hear you keep going on like why this is so important to you and and how you look at your own healing, Germany's healing, the U S healing. I think the the core. I'll, I'll start with like one of the I think core leadership strategies that is often undervalued, which is the strategy of acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Like I think I think you know as you know coaches and psychologists often learn that in their training that that sort of you know acknowledging people's reality, people's feelings, people's narratives is is like is can be a really powerful tool to like open open up a new process to heal to to feel seen to not kind of reenact the same cycles of like being like hurt traumatized gaslit whatever it is and and i don't think we we generally acknowledge you know enough and and i think sort of when we look at you know why is it even important to study the past and to learn about the past i think you can make the argument around like well so that we can prevent something like that in the future from happening but I think another piece is because the constant process of the work of acknowledgement is also kind of a microdose of of healing, and it's not that one acknowledgement, you know, you know, heals it all for all time, but I think sort of the the collective practice of you know acknowledging and sit being present with with past is you know has a healing a potentially healing function. When we had our retreat last week, my firm Kono had a retreat last week in Germany, and our members of the Israel office were were joining as well. And and that retreat was like, you know, in Germany, it was a few miles away from the Polish border, where like, you know, in Poland, Germany committed like a lot of their atrocities, a lot of the concentration and termination camps were in kind of not on German territory, but kind of in the in the east and. And so when I opened, I was like, I was just, you know, you know, in a sentence or to acknowledging that piece and and sort of, you know, one of my Israeli colleagues came to me afterwards and said, like, you know, I I wasn't even I didn't even know that I needed this. I've been to Germany many times. I love Berlin. I love working with my German colleagues. Like I'm fine. And like, thank you. It was really meaningful for you to acknowledge that. And I think that's 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 all. And, and I think that's sort of having a a practice of of acknowledgement or memor- collective memorialization is is an important practice and and i think you know we we you know privileged why you know 
folks that have the the oppressor part in our ancestry, you know, sometimes can feel fragile, anxious, awkward around that. And I think that's exactly, and that's why we avoid it, but that's exactly where the work is. And and so I think what I what I find interesting is when I look at so so you know I, I think that's that's why it's important, and then and then when I look at kind of the, the 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 practice, how did we come to this? Like even coming to a place where we can acknowledge the facts, the 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 the, the pain, the hurt, the atrocities, the crimes, all of that stuff. Like even getting getting to there is is a long pathway because there's tons of losses involved and relationships right so I'll, i can i can walk you a little bit through kind of you know what what happened in germany which you know in a way is is took a long time and is is fascinating to to watch you know you have you have this like world war ii the nazis come into power you know the 33 democratically elected, just as a reminder for our American audience here, <laughs> democratically elected by the system to then dismantle the system and supported by, you know, some of the other parties as well, by some of the, you know, the Nazis, Nazis only only get got like with a parliamentary system, they only got in the 30% or so, but because other parties built a coalition with them, they basically put them into power, right? And, and the... I think the the narrative and often the misunderstood narrative is that everything Nazis did was like just like pure coercion, like, you know, speaking up against them and you would be shot kind of. And that's why everybody complied, which may be true at some parts. But like we forget that there was an authorizing environment. They got elected into power. And, and the first few years, they like kind of tested the boundaries of that authorizing environment, like the 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 concentration camp and the extermination camps and you know all of the most horrible stuff happened in the past few years. The 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 early, I mean, they hosted the Olympics in thirty six. They they the the war only started in thirty nine. But like up until up until then, there was like ongoing cross violations and and kind of sort of getting rid of sort of institutional practices and you know beginning to codify laws of like you know, of, of, you know, who is pure and Aryan and who's not. And like, and like public exp expressions of shame that, that Aryan, Aryan Germans participated in and authorized through their participation, through their presence, through their taking photographs or showing up or applauding or whatever that then laid the ground for like further work. And, and the reason why I think why this is so important to know is like, that then suddenly gets into this question of like, like, how could this have happened? It's not just a few sort of evil Nazis that were there, but they they were in an authorizing environment that we were all part of. And we don't know, I don't know, as a as the German who is like the grandchild of that generation, how I would have reacted if that had happened in my neighborhood. Would I have been the only one who showed up and said, like, I protest and I don't join in the Hitler salute and I don't Right. Like that is that big question I think we're, you know, we're sitting with. And and so, you know, you you fast forward and and you know, wake up kind of in, in the Germany of like 46, 47 in ruins, kind of, you know, lost the war. You like, you know, certainly a lot of pain to like everyday everyday Germans has happened as well in that war. My grandparents' house got bombed by a bomb, so they their house was literally in in ruins. 
and so their focus, like as as a lot of folks focus, like in that time in Germany, was like, you know, how do we rebuild this country, and literally like rebuilding the houses, the streets, the infrastructure, the economy. How do we get like the prisoners of war back? You know, how do we? Where's where's my where's my brother? Where's my father? Like, you know, so like, so so okay, so the, the, in that environment, how do you then begin? When do you begin to to deal with the past? So. So certainly not in the 50s. We we see those first moves only like later in the 60s um, um, show up and and kind of and I find those those moves that we see very interesting because Germany has then had an economic boom. Suddenly, like the, the bellies were getting a little bit bigger and people were starting to drive cars and like the Volkswagen was thriving and you know all of that stuff. So at what point does somebody show up, practice leadership, and say like, wait a moment, can we pause everybody? Like there's like an elephant in the room we all need to address and and i think it is it is these moments of of leadership that i don't think we study enough and we talk a lot enough about because i think these moments of leadership are the type of leadership that we need in in the us and 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 uh right now so so if it's okay i'll just share two or three with you and then yeah you know we'll 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 go into the conversation so 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 because like because the, we're currently talking so much about the court system in many countries, in the U.S., been talking a lot about the courts. In Israel, we're talking a lot about the courts um, at the moment. One of the most significant moves of leadership that has enabled Germany to confront its past was in the court, in the legal system, in the court system. It was a district attorney who had the guts to put basically Auschwitz murders in front of a, you know, then you know, Western German court in the late 60s, like, you know, over 20 years later. And and it was unheard of. And and because many of his colleagues, you know, had been part of the system, he got a lot of threats, death threats, but marginalized. His name was Fritz Bauer. There's like two beautiful movies made about him that are also available in English. I highly recommend to watch but he really had the guts to bring to to start you know germans were very meticulous kind of bureaucrats a lot of us documented and he had the guts to bring uh, start having trials and so and the interesting thing this is coming back to sort of acknowledgement education like you can ask yourself like i think there was like a couple of hundred maybe 800 or 900 people tried in the end like if you compare that to the scope of like you know 6 million murdered you know Bernard juice, like, you know, how, what does that, what does this, like, it's impossible to, to compare, but what it did was it, it, it provided a little bit of justice, but it provided acknowledgements. And in particular, it provided like a, a place where Germans began to confront this difficult past. Like when you ask my parents, where did you learn about Auschwitz? It was like in the late 60s from the newspapers of the Auschwitz trials. Like before that, nobody would talk about, about the Holocaust at all. So so in a way, there's this like attorney who's try, running a case, but actually this is education, right? So, so, and I think that's one of the, that's why I've called this leadership because he's doing his like lawyer work, he's doing his attorney work, but like it's actually, I think it's it's leadership work in the sense of it provides the platform for us to learn and to hear about it. And he was the he was the guy who like leaked 
like he also wanted to bring like some of the biggest some of the biggest you know biggest names of you know the Eichmanns and Mengele's in front of uh, the, the court some of the, the, the kind of the biggest criminals and and that was too too hot the police wouldn't even collaborate with him so he leaked he leaked that to to the Mossad and like finally Eichmann was trialed in, in Israel so and then then like another group of of leadership moves that we saw then is like uh he was the mo- he was very hated people didn't like him didn't like this district attorney but then what happened was that um a lot of the people in the streets like the the you know student protests in the late 60s that also happened in germany uh, a lot of students of humanities and and kind of social sciences they would partner with him like this kind of old district attorney guy and would say like he became a little bit of a hero for them and and so that's where sort of activism you know joined in and then the interesting thing is many of these students then became teachers in the 70s and 80s and those were the people who taught me in school Mm. about history and then we would and and like and were involved or the historians were involved in memorialization then that's when we see the 70s and 80s and 90s kind of actually the memorials kicking up in Germany and and the local studies and like in my school we visited kind of the concentration camp memorial site and like local studied about local Jewish life in my hometown and all of that stuff but like it required a lot of leadership from these former activists who then turned teachers who then in the teachers taught stuff that wasn't in the curriculum they fought for the stuff to be in the curriculum and I think that is so relevant because at the moment we have this massive debate in the U.S. around like education and what do we talk about in education and what do we teach and all of that stuff. That was what required tons of leadership from people on the field who say like push forward and say like we need to we need to confront the history. That's that's where a lot of the leadership happened. And then only then in the late '80s and '90s, so so like again a few decades later, when it became kind of common practice for like German senior politicians, authorities to like acknowledge the past. Like it was the German president in sort of, I think, 85, 40th anniversary of the end of World War II, who was for the first time said like the end of World War II was a day, his name was Richard von Weizsäcker, was the end of World War II was a day of liberation not of defeat like that was but that was 40 years later right so you see that whole journey and often we look at the most senior people the leaders that are need to lead us but like that type of leadership often has happened happening in all other kinds of of areas and 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 that i find fascinating like like if i zoom forward into sort of our present day like i think that's that's where we need to encourage leadership and and the work to happen to to confront the past all right that was that was a long journey, so I'm gonna pause now and curious to hear resonances, reactions, uh, uh, reflections from you. Yeah. Oh my God, Michael. There's there's so many things. I'll I'll do my best to pull on a few different threads and then and see if there's a, a question on the other end of it. So, well, one curiosity, just plant this in your brain, is I would love to hear about those two movies you mentioned. Two movies, and I would love maybe after this conversation, I can remind you to send me links to that. I'm struck by something that I am feeling into right now is the power of acknowledgement in as almost a practice in daily life. And and one thing that was coming up for me as you kept referring to acknowledgement is 
I mean, in a work setting, or if we went around our family dinner table, what if we really took the time to check in with each other and see what's what's going on with each person? Like, what are you really bringing to this meeting or to this meal right now? And acknowledging what is happening for every person. That, that feels like it could have this ripple effect and help people really feel like they're safe to be acknowledged and to show up as themselves. And speaking of ripple effect, um, I'm very touched by the way that one courageous act, one courageous leader can have a ripple effect that they they might not see, they might not quote unquote see the benefits of their action, but it is it allows for this seismic shift to happen. And I think one of the really interesting components of what you do at Konu, which for people who speak the language won't be too much of a, of a revelation, but one of the really amazing components of what you do at Konu is you honor the leader in every single person that is part of an organization, right? Leadership is not title. You're the CEO of Konu, but every single person has the capability of being a leader. And so this courageous man was a leader, not because of the title that he had or the status that he had, but because he, there was some truth that he wanted to speak. There was something that mattered to him that he showed up courageously and expressed. And I'm wondering like one question I was sitting with was how how would you explain the importance of this to people in the business world? But I think that you've already really started to massage that into your answers here. I would just love to hear you riff a little bit on what how you would define leadership. Like I think there's a, a really big misconception that, a, like I said, yeah. leader is title. The leader. And what like what does yeah, leadership yeah. mean to you? So the practice of leadership is a very young discipline and much younger than many other disciplines. Like if you, if you journeyed back in, in history, a few decades, like leadership wasn't taught anywhere. And, and so even when we teach it now, like one of my, uh, you know, I, 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 I teach a class at the Harvard graduate school of education. And I always joke, two professors of leadership would rather share the same toothbrush than the same definition of leadership. And, and it speaks to, <laughs> It speaks. It speaks to how, how, how young this discipline is. Like every single book of leadership has their own definition, and and like if if you went to economists, like they might be fighting about things, but they're not fighting around what supply means or what demand means or you know other other worlds. Like usually a discipline is defined by a shared set of like assumptions and vocabulary, and and the practice of the the discipline of leadership really doesn't have that. Like, like there's all of these different definitions of leadership and confusions. And, and so, you know, there's the confusion, there's like, and our fantasies, like the, the, the sort of the, the heroic assumption of the, of the one leader, the savior who like does it all or the, you know, the charisma, you know, and all of these, like the title, the elite, like all of that stuff that, that, that I think is not very useful and, and sort of what I've been leaning on kind of of all of the different frameworks that are out there is Ron Heifetz's uh, leadership framework that is just so beautiful at offering a few really thorough distinctions that help us like be much more nuanced in, you know, as, as this practice is evolving. And one of those distinctions is that he says like, you know, there is a difference between the role that you have in an organization or in a group. We call that role authority. You know, you are authorized as the CEO. You are authorized as the parent president. You are also maybe informally authorized as the helper or supporter or, 
you know, peacemaker, like that's a role, right? We call that formal authority and informal authority, but then there is the, the act, the practice of leadership. It's a verb. It's not a role that you hold that you constantly do, but there are moments, you know, today you may make that move, but tomorrow you may not make it. And today we, you know, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson Heifetz talks like has all of these historic studies in his book. And like one chapter, he talks about like all of these like fascinating leadership moves that Lyndon B. Johnson made about the civil rights movement. And then the next chapter, you see how Lyndon B. Johnson like really screws us up around Vietnam. And like, is, it, is he a leader? Is he not a leader? Well, it doesn't matter. He is the president. That's his role. And he had moments when he practiced really beautiful leadership that led to progress. And then moments when he misled people. And and when it when it created the opposite. So so how do we see good leadership in the results? We see this as I'm able to make progress on the tough, complex challenges of their time. Is you know, it's learning happening and 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 progress learning thriving happening. That is kind of the the measurement of of leadership. And when I and I tie that back to kind of that question around kind of German democracy and civil society and and diversity and inclusion is like, you know, is is Germany in a better place now than you know it was in the past? And has learning been happened? It is the more resilience, more robustness. You know, I would say yes, but like that is not a single quote unquote leader who got it got us there. But like that is many many moves, many acts of leadership. Some of them we saw, like by Fritz Bauer, the district attorney, and some of these teachers, but many of these moves also are happening day to day in families with parents having conversations with their kids and with each other and fighting and and like exploring these nuances. So I think that is that is what we mean by leadership as possible from from any chair. You know, when we are working in our organization, made a big effort or are in the journey of making a big effort and becoming more diverse and equitable as an organization, like like this is not one mission statement or one conversation. This is ongoing work. And every single move of this, every single learning move that makes us a little bit better, like that is leadership work. Could you speak a little bit? I mean, so I actually wanted to connect one other dot that I think is important as it pertains to understanding leadership and, and why we do things that we do. Something that seemed baked into your explanation of Germany's history was the way that systems really heavily influence the way that we operate, right? Yeah. And I think that we we take that for granted. I, I know that I have taken it for granted. Like America is hyper-individualistic. We like to take responsibility for the way that we act. And also, it's important to note that systems really play a big role. Like we operate in capitalism. We operate in systems that favor men, patriarchy. We have a history of colonialization. So there's, uh, I wanted to bring that into our awareness too. And uh, the the question, which has nothing to do with that, I just wanted to share the reflection is like, how do you, how do you look at these really big challenges? What, What does the work look like so that you're able to, you're not making a mission statement about race and climate change. It's something that you're actively looking at. What does that look like for Kona? Yeah. So, I mean, Kona's work is to develop change agents, right, for these big systemic challenges out there. It's a very ambitious kind of purpose statement, if you want. But but when I think about the practice of leadership, like these these 
there are challenges out there in the world that are complex in nature and don't, we don't know the answers for that yet. We don't know how to solve climate change. Otherwise, we would have solved that. We don't know how to solve questions around equity or you know how to heal some of these historic wounds. We uh, we don't know how to bring peace in, in certain areas in the world. We don't know how to transform our economy in a way that more people can thrive and participate. We have so many, so many complex, you know, the 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 ocean stuff, the, the pollution. Like there's so many pieces that we don't know the answers to. And we would call them complex or wicked or adaptive. I would call them adaptive challenges, challenges that require learning. So how can we make progress on them, right? Very often we look at experts and we say like, hey, let's look at the expert and, and solve it. But like the expert can't solve a challenge that we don't know how to solve. The expert can solve a technical challenge that requires expertise, but they can't solve a challenge that requires learning. So then we need to figure out how do we organize learning? And, and so, so the interesting thing there is that's currently that's then where all of our agency sets in because many of these complex challenges have manifestations at whichever level of a system that you're operating in. When you are working for the UN and figure out what the response to climate change in Bangladesh is as 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 they're kind of just on the on the cusp of graduating from kind of low income country to middle income country and what that means to their economy and like climate change policy like that's the level of a system that you know the government and the un is operating on right that is very different from figuring out what do we do about climate change if i am a an organization with 15 people that is flying a lot like kono is or if i am a organization with 2000 people that you know so each each part of the system, or if I'm a family system that is figuring out well, what are we going to do for our next vacation, or are we putting solar panels on our roof, or you know how are we educating our children around the climate, and and are we going skiing next winter? Like, all I think each in a way each of these challenges. I'm talking about climate now, but like if you think about sort of diversity, equity, inclusion as another challenge, has manifestations at levels as systemic levels, macro, meso, micro in which we have some agency. Maybe our team at the lowest level, our family, ourselves. It may be our organization, our community, our neighborhood, or it may be for some people, the nation. And then you go on the streets or you become an elected official. And, and the question is, how are you working that challenge at that level? And I think the mistake we often make is that we are not finding the right level. So when when we work work with change agents, we look at, what is the level of the system that you have some agency over? That doesn't mean you need to have full agency, right? You don't need to be in charge of that team that is trying to figure out how do we, for example, uh, are more inclusive of voices around the table. You don't need to be in charge of that. You can actually be just a participant and say like, hey, we haven't heard from this participant yet. I'd love to bring their voice in. But you need to be at the table, right? You can't, you know, so... So, so I think that's an interesting question. I, I just as much as the local teachers in the German case example in my hometown were working a piece of how do we deal with the past in Germany, a piece of the puzzle, we are all working in our different roles, a piece of the puzzle of these global challenges. 
and we and a common form of work avoidance of over of how we deal with our overwhelm is it's like look back and say like i can't do anything about this like like this is for the politicians or this is for you know the seed like but the problem is when you go to their offices i i coach a bunch of ceos like they don't know what to do either. They're overwhelmed with it as well. They can't say it as loudly because that's, you know, they were hired to solve the problems. But the nature of the problems is such that they require learning. And so the learning needs to be organized. And like that's where sort of an education mindset helps. And learning needs to be organized at the at a level of a system that you have some influence over. Hmm. Oh, there's there's so much here. Well, one one thing that I would love to hear your thoughts on is just the way that you look at education. Like there there is there is a lot of tension around education system, whether it's for children who are going through traditional schooling in what a lot of people would would say is an outdated way of teaching and learning. It uh, it usually makes for this is my projection. It makes for people who are compliant workers but who aren't able to really like haven't learned the skills around uh, sitting with adaptive challenges, things that don't have an answer. We're really good. We we are conditioned really well to problem solve and find technical problems to work on. And our education system, it seems to lack a lot around emotional awareness, relational awareness. But I think that I, I've pointed out a lot of the different things that are interesting to me. And you're an educator. So what, what do you, how do you look at ways that if we were to totally reinvent the education system so that folks were more equipped to both do technical things are important. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but also are able to hold these adaptive challenges that are important. If we don't, if we don't address climate change at some point, that will be the termination of us. That's a big question. I am. So first of all, like I, I'm not educated in the U S and I have done very little work in the U.S. education right. system, I'm I'm only beginning to learn more and more about it, and kind of contrast and compare some of the differences of my experience in the German education system, where I have as an educator and somebody who was in the German charter school movement, I have some experience. So I may not be the best to kind of at the best position to contrast and compare and evaluate. Maybe what I can bring is the lens of the experiential educator who that I've been in that I've been and, and identify as. And I think that holds true for both adults and for children, which is people learn really well when there is a problem in front of them that waits to be solved. And that is a problem that is just hard enough so it's a little bit outside our competence of knowing how to solve it, but it's not overwhelming. It's not totally overwhelming. It's just outside that frontier. And and if it's a problem that is relevant to us, like it's often like one of the reasons, like, you know, some education doesn't feel relevant to us. It's like we're learning things that we don't know what what their relevance is. So So somehow the work of educators is to help people who are learning to understand, to frame the, the reason why this is a worthwhile challenge to mm. engage with and then engage with it and then and then try to figure that out. And and I think if these two things are happening, if the sort of if the problem is scoped in a way that it's 
It's not too easy. It's not too hard. It pushes us a little bit into that learning zone. And if it's, it feels relevant, it feels like that is something I want to engage with right now. I think then beautiful learning happens. And so I often think that that is, that's the role of the educator, kind of the, the curation and scoping of the challenges of the problems and then the, the, the framing invitation into the, the problem space and, and then and then supporting the process and and helping folks you know reflect and understand like what is it that we're learning here what you know how do we address this how did we solve this and mm-hmm. and this may be true for for young children that are you know entering a physics challenge problem uh, as much as adults who are trying to engage with a problem that is outside their zone of comfort competence in the management or organizational space mm-hmm. What do you think is important about like personal development can have a lot of different flavors and like what, what would you say is important about personal development, human development in terms of how we can address these, these really big, like helping people become change agents on whose mission. I imagine that that is looking, making eye contact with change agents to become change agents for things around race, climate change, et cetera. Yeah. And so what would you say is important about development? Why why is it important that we do our own work so that we can be change agents? There's different developmental tasks or different developmental capabilities that are needed for different types of engaging with complex work. I'll give you two or three examples. The work of naming a harsh reality, the activist work of like, you know, look, there is an elephant in the room we're not addressing. Like, you know, in the German case example or in, you know, the example of many Fridays for Future folks that are helping us address the climate emergency and saying like, this is not a climate change challenge. This is a climate crisis, an emergency, right? That work that activist work requires a deep understanding of courage of of the readiness to take risks and and like there's a reason why that is often kind of a youth movement mm-hmm. <laughs> right that is a kind of a, a developmental reality that that often happens in in you know young people but then there's almost a second phase of that where you know we may have a phase in which we are trying to fit in where we're trying to find our role in society, where we're trying to belong, where we're trying to, and and we may be anxious around not fitting in, around not belonging, around not performing well enough, and that prevents us from being courageous, from speaking up. So, so okay, then we may need to learn again or relearn to get in touch again with that sort of own voice, my own voice, my own perspective, my own stance. And kind of that kind of almost pendulum between like, here's an injustice, but I also want to belong. But like, mm-hmm. there's also important work to do. Like that, we would call that, that is is a developmental journey, not just a skill set, like different stages of maturity of adulthood are engaging different with that challenge. I'll give you a second example. There's a real leader, another leadership opportunity is holding people holding two people in a, in a room together, including people of difference and, and helping them understand why it's important to be in a room together. Now, 
if you're if you're overly conflict averse, we talked about that in our beginning of conversation. Often people think about conflict aversion as a character trait. I don't think it's true. I think it's this is a developmental opportunity. Like like we all have had certain areas in our lives and certain developmental, you know stages where the conflict aversion was actually a necessary real reality that protected us, at least you and me, in our biography. But I think that's true for many people. As we adult, as 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 adults, as we grow older, we find that, you know, the big bad thing that may happen if somebody gets angry is actually not that big and bad. All that happens is like they get angry. Because we are adults ourselves. We can hold ourselves. We can, we're fine. We're even fine with another adult who freaks out. We're like, okay, come down. Let's bring it again. We're good again. Right. But like that is a developmental capacity that is self development that we develop over time, sometimes in our 30s, sometimes in my case, in my early 40s. But that's a core capability to hold a room and to allow a room to have a really juicy, productive conflict with each other. And not for you as the facilitator or the convener or the authority or whoever you are in the room to like at the at the earliest beginning of some conflict emerging to shut it down and say like, hey, back to harmony, let's take this offline, let's set up the group, let's call in consultants, let's do all, oh, it's mm -hmm. not that bad of a problem, we're all good, we're all happy, we love each other. All of these avoidance tactics that we constantly do, like that is a developmental capacity. We're like, really like, okay. Let's get in touch with what would be so bad about like the heat going a little bit higher here because that's mm -hmm. actually where some of the juice is. And so, anyways, there's more of these areas, but like that's how where the personal development, it's not, I mean, it's nice to develop and to learn more about yourself, but like that the capability of these skills around conflict and heat, the the capability around like provocation and activism and creativity and, and voice, like these are just two areas of of you know, where I see people grow tremendously within a coaching journey or within a developmental setting, either therapy, a coaching's journey, or a program, a leadership development program where they're suddenly like, holy moly, show up very differently after like a few months of work and suddenly speak up or suddenly like hold steady and like not cool the room down, you know, and that's beautiful to see. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing, one of the simple ways to put this maybe is that if you if you build the capacity for more options to happen, that you're not averse to more to so many things, then there's just more availability for other, you know, productive ways of emergence, right? Like that's that's kind of long and short of what I'm hearing. Beautiful, beautiful. More options. Having more options in your toolbox has is never is never a bad idea. No. Because then you have much more nuanced opportunities. And, and you can course correct if you feel like, oh, this path doesn't really work. Well, let's try this one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm meandering a little bit here, but there's, I think there's so many cool aspects to your story. And one way I, I'm wondering, I guess this, this might be a two-parter. I'm wondering what woke you up to the importance of doing this work, because for a lot of my life, I have been avoidant and I don't know if you asked me the same question that I would have to reflect a little bit, like what woke me up to step into this line of work? And maybe the the second part of this question that I want to throw your way is I'm, I'm always in touch with the power of storytelling. And when you were younger, you watched, I didn't watch the show, but you watched Star Trek. And it seems like 
Star Trek spoke to you, it, it woke something up in you. And I don't know if these two things are connected, but you could take you can take this and run with it in any way you would like. So um, I guess the two-parter is, I'm curious what impact Star Trek had on you. And I'm curious what, what woke you up to the level of importance of this work? Now I'm curious. You know, you said like, I don't know what to like, like, tell me a little bit more what you mean by waking up. It's such an yeah. interesting word choice. Yeah. Do you and, want me to and maybe and maybe as you explain that, maybe there is a there is something that comes up for you as you as you get in touch with what what woke you up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that For a while, I definitely looked at my life as I just have to, it's interesting because I, in a lot of ways, I wasn't taking care of myself because I was living some other prescribed life that was, that didn't feel like it was mine. But I also looked at responsibility as something that belonged out there, but not with me. Like that I didn't, I didn't have the agency to show up as a leader, given that I was only an associate at my first job. And I didn't have the agency to affect climate change. I'm just one in a node of a massive network of people. And yeah, so when I say waking up, I think that there, over time, there gradually was a shift in my life where I have started to take more responsibility. Like in a kind of joking way, sometimes when I'm, it's not, I'm not, it's very deadly serious, but in a lighthearted way. I will walk with my wife outside and if there's a piece of trash on the ground, I lean down, pick it up and say, not on my planet. And I throw that in the garbage. And I I never would have done that in the past. That's not to say that I'm a cape, wearing a cape and I'm a superhero. It's just like this, this being alive on this planet and supporting this planet is really important to me. And there are a few things that contributed to that, but I would describe waking up as being feeling like there are what you said, there's problems, there's diagnostics that we can use to assess what how we can have an effect. And I'm always I'm constantly scanning for what's the level of effect that I can have on this thing that I say is important to me. And how can I act on the thing that I say is important to me, not just say it in here for some moral high ground. Beautiful. Beautiful. For me, I think my wake up moment is is around orchestrating learning. I have been growing up so frustrated with my primary care takers' inabilities to learn, learn and adjust. It was just like I've been trying so hard to like explain to mommy what daddy means, to explain to daddy what mommy means, and it's just like it was like. And and one of my kind of sanctuaries was my dancing. I was a I was a rock and roll dancer as a teenager and in my twenties, and and. I, I kind of thought it was it was an escape, but it was also joy, and I just really loved. And I, I learned early how to learn how I would make progress if I kind of continued with a re regular practice. And I, um, for some reason, and I don't know why, I decided as the fifteen-year-old to start coaching kind of the younger kids, the twelve-year-olds. And I even did like a certificate, and they let me like coach like in the I don't know like today with liability and like stuff would be like but like I was like a 15 year old with like 12 year olds with a key and like hosting the, the sessions just me no adults that was me there's videos I have videos of this fascinating 
right? But like, so, so, and very early in my teaching career, that's when I started teaching at 15, very early in my teaching career, I remember this moment when I was working with a, a young couple, they may not even have been 12, they may have been like nine or 10. And for the life of it, they could not dance to the rhythm of the music. They would have what I call an autonomous, today I would have called it an autonomous music understanding. Like, and, and, and they were just like, the music would roll in their rhythm and they would just dance like, like as if they were in a different planet hearing something else. And it was just like, it would not align with the music. <laughs> and I was like, I was like sitting with that challenge around, how do I teach these, these kids how to like hear the rhythm and dance to the rhythm? And it took me like a, a week or two or three. And I was really like, I was like, this is so fascinating to me because I couldn't even not dance in the rhythm. I tried <laughs> to do that, but like, but like once you hear the rhythm, you can't unhear it. It's like the hardest thing in the world to dance, not to the rhythm when you have the rhythm. So I tried all, all kinds of things. And then there was this moment when I switched off the music and I asked them to sing to their dancing sing and count we started we played with count we started with clapping we counting and singing all these things different things and when they would clap and count and snap and sing to their own dancing it, would, it was all aligned it was all aligned so they were dancing to a rhythm to their singing then i switched on the music and i said like okay like do you remind like hear the song sing along and they were listening to the song and hearing along and then I will like switch it on and ask them to like sing along and hear, hear the song and sing along and dance along. And bam, they were dancing to the music in the rhythm in line. And from that moment, they could never unhear it. They would always be in the rhythm. It was just like this moment where this light bulb got on. And I, I think like looking at it, like back now, I haven't thought about the story for a long time, but looking at it now, I'm just like, I don't think they were listening to the music before. I don't think they were hearing the music. I don't think they were like in touch with the, with the rhythm and the singing and the counting and the clapping got them in touch with like the listening and the perception of, of it. And, and the, the wake up moment there was like, I still remember in that moment, kind of the frustration of like, how do I teach somebody how to dance in the rhythm, to hear the rhythm? And then the moment when it clicked for them, it was like almost a holy moment, a sacred moment where I'm just like, wow. And I knew at that moment they would never go back. And and that was the first light bulb, learning light bulb moment that I saw. And and I think ever since then, I've been like obsessed with like finding light bulb moments for people and, and caring about like learning as possible and learning is beautiful and it's magical and it's gorgeous. And and how can I how can I generate context where people are like see something differently that I that they can't unsee anymore and that's the type of learning I'm curious about so so kind of the you were asking for wake up but like there was the the hope I think the hope was there like wow I can actually help orchestrate learn they don't always have like but like I can orchestrate learning and and there is a, there's the hope that it clicks. It's a beautiful story. And, and in a lot of ways, it's a metaphor for, you know, like a lot of ways, I think when we start to get into development work, we're, we're dancing to a rhythm that we can't even hear. And then if you can, if you can help someone align to like, here are some other steps that can help you listen to the music. I would, 
it's akin to finding alignment. Oh, there's yeah. like, for me, my somatic development has been, I didn't, I couldn't possibly have listened to the cues that my body was giving me because I had no literacy in it. And once someone gave me a couple of different cues that I could look for, it's, it's something now that I routinely check in with in myself. And, and so it actually is a beautiful metaphor for the, the dance of life, if you will, that, you know, we're, we're all kind of, in some ways we would probably get lost and are dancing to some beat that we can't even follow. And then if we help someone find that this is one way to get alignment with the beat, that's a, that's such a beautiful moment. So I I'm really loving that metaphor. And yeah, if, if there's anything else that comes up for you around that, I'm, I'm happy to listen to it, but I also am curious to hear around, I, I did bring up Star Trek and I think that storytelling and pop culture can be really yeah powerful portals into you know stories can just evoke a lot that maybe yeah. everyday life doesn't so what did star yeah. trek evoke for you i'm a big trekkie i mean like um this is these the past few years trek has has had a huge revival with like a bunch of new shows and like i'm like you know ready to go home and watch the new show that just came out today and the, it's it's just it's just it's just such a the, the child in me is just like a heart is shining so i grew up in the 80s and 90s uh, a little bit with Captain Kirk and kind of the original Star Trek, but really with Next Generation, Jean-Luc Picard, Deep Space Nine was lovely and Voyager, like those those three shows and the feature movies. And and the the interesting thing is is when we think about how how I think how people like the next this, the younger generation many of them relate to harry potter as kind of sacred text and and like kind of you know you know go back and back and back and i can go back and back and back to star trek over and over again and and i think one of the beautiful things of star trek from the very first morning moment even in the 60s is kind of this hopeful vision of the future and including this really nuanced idea of diversity and infinite kind of possibilities that can happen with diversity. Like, I mean, Star Trek has been some of the some of the pioneers around. Like, I mean, the first interracial kiss on television mm-hmm. is like William Shatner, Nichelle Nichols, the the you know, who are on Kirk. We have like people always say like, oh, we don't have any any people of color in leading leading roles in in tv shows no representation i mean look at deep space nine from the 90s like avery brooks a a a really inspiring black actor as a single dad with his kind of 10 year old son like like you know you have him in this in this like difficult like commanding posts at the space station but also you see the the family dynamic play out like the 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 mom got killed in an accident or in a, like in a, in a war so it was it was this beautiful portrayal like real three-dimensional very like in the 90s and 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 so you see that over and over again around like different areas that star trek has been really like a little bit ahead of its its time but and and so for me growing up this difficult family system this closeted gay kid often really feeling like kind of the outsider and like lonely and all of that stuff that the world of star trek where like there was these creatures these different planets the the wrestling with like multiple perspectives and kind of the logic of each of the their own stories and their norms and how they clash with with each other but also how they get resolved with each other was just like like such an hopeful inspiration 
to see and and if I may say sort of today kind of looking back at it like so different from so many other narratives that we see that are very simplistic kind of you know if you like sorry Star Wars fans out there but like the you know a Star Wars always feels to me like sort of good versus evil kind of a medieval battle in space it just just happens to be in space but 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 like the Star Trek has like this beautiful nuance around like you know multiple multiple narratives and options and and you know ways to resolve like those tensions that comes come from that and and this immense hopefulness moving forward mm -hmm. so interestingly put and there's a, a lot of airtime is given to the hero's journey and and i think that there's definitely space for hero's journey like star wars type of movies where there's uh, one hero one protagonist that we're rooting for, but I love, I love that you're bringing in the kind of complexity and nuance that that is clearly a through line in your work and in your life. So Michael, is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that you would like to bring into the conversation? And if not, I have just a couple more questions for you. Let's go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So these are these might be a little bit lighter. We've we've talked about some really big things. I've asked some big questions. <laughs> these might be a little simpler for you. So you can you could start to turn the heat down. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? In the mo in the morning when I put the boiling water on my oatmeal and the smell that comes up as the as the flakes are like slowly like sort of you know, disintegrating in that hot water and, and like, you know, that I really enjoy that moment. Hmm. You brought up dance. This might be the answer, like acrobatic dance. Is there, what other hobbies or things are you doing for fun or, or how do you look at play in your life? So I've been doing a lot of yoga, but like the, the real playful stuff is I've started a, uh, a handstand practice and even treated myself with a handstand coach who is really impressive kind of Instagram kind of celebrity with, with handstands. We can add his file, link in the, in the show notes, maybe yeah, sure. Ulrich, Ulrich. And, and he has this beautiful program where he like, you know, gives you a, a you know, a, a, a training plan and you tape your, you film yourself with your phone and then he gives you feedback once a week. And, and I've been, like I had this assumption that, you know, oh my God, I'm in my forties now, handstand is out of my reading. And I was just like, you know what, I'm gonna try it. And I'm like, from not even being able to stand free to like my now record, I mean it's not persistent, but like I last week I got 30 seconds freestanding handstand and it was amazing. So so that's kind of my current really like weird hobby is like handstanding and like learning how to balance, learning how to find balance in handstand. I love it. Is there something that you're actively working on on learning in your life right now? Uh, on learning or unlearning? Unlearning. Unlearning. UN. UN. Unlearning. Holy y'all. I thought these were lighter questions. <laughs> <laughs> this one's, I guess, not as light. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the the big theme for me is like I'm. We haven't talked much about kind of my my organizational journey, but like, you know, I, I founded my firm in nine years ago uh, by myself and with 
you know, with my co-founder, Tim O'Brien, but it was mainly the two of us. And now we're like almost 20 people. And so I am really at that stage where I'm learning, unlearning kind of the micro management and the control and the quality elements that have really helped me succeed in the early years and now really allowing people to find their own measures of quality and, and, you know, beauty and creativity and, and so that's going well on some days and on other days I regress and jump in and fix it all. And, and, you know, so letting go of, of my control tendencies, I think is, is the unlearning journey that I have been on recently. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just two more for you. One is if there's a couple of books that you'd recommend as they pertain to this conversation that we've had so far. Yeah. I'd love to yeah. always leave my listeners with a couple of books. So I, I think, you know, if you're interested about the, the history stuff, I think the best one is cast by Isabella Wilkes. It's like, you know, a very well, widely known book. And the beauty of that book is it compares kind of Germany, India, and the U.S., what she calls caste systems mm -hmm. and and just the categories of caste are different in, in german it's like you know aryan and jewish and indian it's the caste and in the us it's like mainly around race uh the, sort of the, the the caste system around race but like the 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 the, the, the parallels and comparisons she draws are uh, are really amazing including some of the implications for leadership work so I, I I love that book. I I think it's it's really really powerful. Kaifetz, um, and and my favorite book is actually the oldest one, Leadership Without Easy Answers. It's also the densest one. It's the book that I I reread in my podcast on the balcony. But it's really beautiful because it it just has a lot of rigor in the stories in the in the the framework. So that's that is really wonderful. Maybe those two. Okay. So it's cast by Isabella Wilkins and Leadership Without Easy Answers by Ron Hypetz, right? Those are the those are the two. Correct. Okay. All right. And I will definitely link in addition to those and other resources, people that were mentioned in the conversation. I'll link to your podcast on the balcony. I'll link to Konu. Are there other places that you would invite people to connect with you? Or those those are the two main ones? Yeah. LinkedIn. Happy to reach, you know, for folks to reach out on LinkedIn. But yeah. I'll, I'll link to that as well. All right. And the final question, which actually also uh, maybe I over promised and under delivered here. The, the final question is not a, a super softball toss. The podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning, as you know, and I've collected almost 100 answers to this question. I, I would love to know in your words what it means to live a meaningful life. To learn, to love, to play, to be free, mm. to be in relationship. Well, Michael, those are those are beautiful things, and uh, as good an answer as as any to that question. So, I think you brought a little bit of all of those flavors into the conversation today and and we brought in play briefly at the end there but it seems like it's actually a big part of your life as well so i really appreciate you taking the time to have this wide-ranging conversation with me i think they're all 
equal parts timely and also timeless. These are these are things that we can sit with for a really long time that are also really important right now. And I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing at Konu. I'm a big fan of you as a person now, as I have gotten to listen to other appearances that you've made and having this conversation we had today. It is not easy to address all of these different complexities. And I know that it's not a, a one-man show or one organization show, but it's it, it must not be easy for you as an organization at Konu to be helping other organizations confront these really thorny challenges. And you seem like you do it in a way that brings a certain level of levity and also addresses the urgency of all of these challenges. And I think that's a, that's a really important balance to strike. And I'm really glad that you're able to share some of your gifts with me today and, and with the audience. So thank you so much for being here. Mike, thank you. Thank you for creating this space, your presence, your curiosity, your depth. It's been such a joy. Mm. Thank you. Mm. And to anyone and everyone who's listening, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Maybe do a handstand for however many seconds you can and take good care. Lots of love. <laughs> thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.